0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in French Studies, discussions with scholars of France and the Francophone world about their new books. I'm your host, Roxanne Penchassi. My guest today is Catherine Brown, the editor of the collection Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in French Studies, discussions with scholars of France and the Francophone world about their new books. I'm your host, Roxanne Panchassi. My guest today is Catherine Brown, the editor of the collection Perspectives on Degas, and the book was published by Ashgate in 2017. Hi there, Catherine. Hi, Roxanne. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. It's great to be here. Could you get us started by telling our listeners a little bit more about yourself and what got you interested in working on French art?
1: Absolutely. Um, I'm an art historian based at Loughborough University in the UK and I'm very fortunate to have a background in literature and art history. Mm. I studied French literature as an undergraduate and then I went to Oxford to do a, a doctorate where I had the privilege of working with the great Proust and Malachme scholar Malcolm Bowie. Mm. And I think it was Then, when I was writing about Baudelaire and looking at Baudelaire's art criticism, I started to get very interested in intersections between poetry and painting and also started reading all of that terrific art criticism that was produced by writers in the late 19th century. Mm -hmm. So that led me to do a second PhD. This time in art history, Um, and the basis of that research uh, turned into my first book, which was Women Readers in French Painting, eighteen seventy to eighteen ninety. And since then, I've really kept up with uh, looking at the ways in which art and literature merge, ways in which uh, artists and poets have related to each other, and. um, Duga fits into all of that. And perhaps mm. we can talk a little bit about that later when I um, can tell you a little bit about the, the chapter that I've contributed to this mm-hmm. particular volume.
0: Before we go any further, uh, Catherine, while well, I'm sure our listeners are familiar with the work of Edgar Degas. um I wonder if you could give us, and I realized as I was kind of jotting down notes for this question that it's kind of an impossible question, so I apologize in advance, <laughs> but if you could just give us a very brief Biographical sketch of the artist, just to locate him for us in space and time a bit, you know, and give a sense, give us a sense of where he fits broadly speaking.
1: Sure, Degas was born in eighteen thirty four, and he died in nineteen seventeen. Now that, that that's so, that's a a long life, and it really covers a a huge span of of a changing art world. Mm-hmm. He exhibited at the Paris Salon. He actually did quite well at the Salon. He was also well known for his history painting. He didn't suffer, suffer the same kind of criticism that a lot of his Impressionist colleagues did. And that's, mm. that slightly set him apart uh, from Impressionist painting. Um, he was a, a hugely versatile artist. And I think that's one of the things that has always really attracted me to his work. Mm-hmm. Um, we move from history painting to his portraiture of the 1860s, uh, wonderful pastels, his bathers uh, that he produced during the 1870s, mm-hmm. and then of course he was also a wonderful printmaker and worked in in sculpture. So we have this relentless energy and experimentation that's going on throughout his creative life, and I think that gives us as historians and as critics uh, a huge amount to write about. Thankfully. Mm-hmm. If I can sort of just develop that a little bit, because sure. um, I mentioned that he he sort of his work sat uneasily with uh, with impressionism. A lot of the early writing about Degas, so in the late nineteenth century, emphasised what what there was known as his his knowing art or his scientific spirit. Right. You have people like Paul Valery talking about Degas painting as a series of operations, almost a solving of mathematical problems. Right. You have Zola talking about Degas as a scientific thinker, or Félix Fénéon considering ways in which Degas produced all of these hundreds and hundreds of sketches as preliminary work, uh, trying to get to the truth of his subject matter. And I think this led to this image of Degas as a a kind of problem solver, as a very Mm self-reflective artist. And one of the things that I've been interested in, and one of the things I wanted to think about in this particular volume was both the way in which Degas did pursue some of those experiments, but also to look at the stuff that got away from him. So thinking about uh, the contexts, the scientific, the artistic, the sociological context in which his work was produced, um, ways in which his society shaped him, and ways in which sometimes he might have produced things where he wasn't wholly in control, or even where he relinquished that control. So there are all these wonderful balances to be, to be found and tensions to be explored uh, in this infinitely changing pictorial style Right. So the book, Catherine is an edited
0: collection of essays on Degas and somewhere, I don't know if it's in your introduction or the press page you know, it's noted that it's the first of its kind really in, in a couple of decades Can you tell us a little bit about the genesis of the project? What made you decide to do an edited collection on Degas?
1: Well, as I say, Dugard died in 1917, so we're at the centenary of his death. Mm -hmm. And I just thought it would be a good time to get a group of scholars together to think about – what factors have shaped our critical conception of Degas works, uh, what avenues there are for further studies. I mean, let's face it, the 19th century is a, is a very, has is, is attracted a lot of uh, really terrific scholarship. Mm-hmm. It's a crowded area. So, you know, if I'm a, if I'm a new scholar coming to this area, what what might I, what trajectories might I be looking to pursue? Um We might also think, and one of the things I think we do achieve in this volume, is to think about the ongoing significance of of earlier approaches, as well as thinking about what kinds of new technologies or methodologies uh, are open to us today. So it was really taking advantage of, of this moment in the history of well Dugard's legacy really mm-hmm. and thinking about where we are today giving a snapshot of of some of the things that people that scholars found important in Dugard's work now in the 21st century and just in terms of the nuts and bolts of how you
0: go about putting together a collection and again I don't you don't have to give the epic <laughs> response to this but you know how did you go about selecting the authors for this volume was there a call was there a workshop or a conference how did they how did you choose the group uh, that is represented uh, in the volume.
1: It was really trying to strike a balance between people who had written about Durga quite extensively, um, bet- and, and to get some newer voices. Uh, I also wanted a, uh, to try and get a, a bit of a geographical spread, so we have, you know, contributions from from Asia, from from the UK, from Europe, from uh, from the US. I also wanted to try and get a bit of a, a balance of, of different kinds of approaches. Mm-hmm. So that's why I was very happy to have some things about context, then about more focusing on the objects that Degas produced, his techniques, mm-hmm. and then ways in which he'd been thought about by other people. So fortunately, um, you know, the, the people I approached and the, the people I knew from their scholarship, all it all just came together and, and you know, it fell fell into place very nicely with all of these contrasting approaches. Mm-hmm.
0: There is a kind of remarkable and, I think, really effective uh, way in which the sections of the book, and there are three of them, and I'll come back to that in a few moments, work separately, but there are also these threads that run throughout. In the introduction to the book, uh, Catherine, and you raised this already, uh, you provide readers with this overview of some of the main threads and concerns of Degas criticism and scholarship reaching mm. back to the 19th century. And of course, we don't have time to talk about all of the principal works and scholars and the kind of milestones in Degas scholarship that you cite in that section of sure. the introduction. But I wonder if you could just say a few words about some of those main approaches and debates in previous work and how this volume you know, is revisiting and maybe addressing some of those trends in the scholarship previously.
1: Right. Well, I mentioned uh, earlier that that idea about Degas knowing art Mm -hmm. uh, and his scientific spirit. And I think that that actually really carried on into the 20th century and into the more modern criticism and more modern history about Degas. You have important works such as Theodore Reff's Degas, The Artist's Mind from 1976. Um, in which he was really thinking through and I think developing some of that earlier criticism about Degas, the scientific thinker. And that carries through into Richard Thompson's work, The Private Degas from 1987, indeed uh, Richard Kendall's work mm-hmm. um, and his curatorial projects uh, portraying Degas as a very self-reflexive artist. And in fact, if you look at some of the, um, the recent museum uh, exhibitions, Degas' method, for example, uh, in Copenhagen in 2013, the very title gives that away, his method, look, again, looking at this sort of problem solving. So we wanted to look at that in this volume and challenge it a little bit, thinking about you know, what the boundaries of, of that kind of approach, what the boundaries are, how they might be challenged, what they lead to, and, and again, what eluded Degas. Mm-hmm. So that was that was one branch of things. I think another very potent theme running through the criticism early and modern uh, is that of gender. Right. You know, we, you can look back to the early criticism on Degas um, and very famously, uh, Jean-Riscard um his writing on Degas' bathers, where he talks about the, the spite and the cruelty mm-hmm. with which Degas is looking at the female body. And I think that that really marked ideas about Degas in the early 20th century and led to these charges of misogyny. Right. Degas the voyeur, Degas the uh, exploiter of women. And we also have sort of commentaries by people like uh, Daniel Alevi uh, about the works that were found in Degas' studio after his Death. he talks about elevy talks about set Oeuvre cachet the hidden work um, that filled him with both horror and admiration mm-hmm. for the artist because there are all these pictures of of, of naked women um, and you know people have struggled to deal with this uh, in the criticism and people mm-hmm. struggle still and Norma Browdy, who I was delighted was able to contribute to this particular volume she she wrote a very important essay in 1977 called Degas misogyny where she confronted this issue and she said look we need to dispense with this presumption of misogynistic motivation in Degas's works because what it does is to obscure bigger issues mm-hmm. it may it means that we overlook The the bigger frameworks of discrimination, of of prejudice that were in place at the time, it means that we overlook the role of men in Degar's work. It also means that we overlook some imagery that shows empathy towards women so she she thought that that whole line of criticism of Dugar actually really skewed thoughts about him and 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 that that was something that needed to be corrected so that that's a theme that i i think still comes to the fore. You still have people who will say "Ah, oh, but what about Dugar's misogyny and you know that continues to be an issue and I think is is still worth debating.
0: One of the projects of this collection, uh, you know, balancing analyses of technical issues, art practice, you're looking at, you know, archival materials, exhibition, museum practice, you know, the art historical uh, debates and scholarship, all of these kinds of things are going on um, in this volume and, and need to be going on in, in the way that we think about Degas' work. And one of the kind of main threads here is to, place Degas' work within the context of 19th century French life. And I'm sort of loosely quoting you here from the introduction. Mm-hmm. So could you just say a little bit about what that means, uh, the connections that the different authors in the book and that you were interested in pursuing with the collection between Degas' work and the broader picture of French history during this period, which is you know also hugely significant so the late, lesser of the 19th century, right up through the almost to the end of the First World War?
1: Well, um, the first section is called Art in Context, Gender, Race and Labour. And they're the three pillars that we're looking at in that first section. And I think that the way in which the authors approach Those themes uh, are interconnected. We have Norma Browdy talking about working women, the laundresses, depictions of laundresses in Degas' work, working horses. It seems an odd connection to make, doesn't it? Uh, (laughs) Women and horses. But to to answer, you know, to answer your question, one of the things that she points out is that at the time there were a lot of parallels made. Between women and horses, that women were viewed as as subjects to be trained, to be broken in, to be used for labor. Mm -hmm. And there was some imagery, there's some imagery by Daumier, some caricatures about that very subject. But that Degas actually showed sympathy in his works, and indeed in some of the sonnets that he wrote, um, for the plight of working horses. And similarly showed a kind of empathy for some of the working women that he depicted and there's a wonderful pastel that Norma talks about, washerwomen and Horses that's uh, in a museum in Lausanne and this is quite late, it's a pastel from around about 1904 where he's really bringing the, the women and the animals together uh, in a way that's very sympathetic and again helps to break down some of those stereotypes about Degas as the exploiter of the, the female body right. so we get that that theme of labour coming through there, and then that continues into the the other chapters. Shao uh, Chen Sung talks about Dugar's depiction of racecourse scenes. Again, we've got the the working jockeys. Uh, Mary Hunter is looking at imagery of of, of the waiter in, mm-hmm. in Dergar's work. So another sort of another approach to the theme of labour, but this time from the point of view of of masculine work. Mm-hmm. And then Anthea Callan. Talks about female spectatorship uh, in Degas' wonderful um, Chanteuse de Café" painting at the Fogg Museum in Harvard, where she's—we're uh, talking—we're uh, looking at women who are café concert performers, mm-hmm. so singers in particular. So we've got all different aspects of of labor coming through in that first section, mm-hmm. uh, including circus performance in Marilyn Brown's chapter as well. So intersections of of the performing body and the laboring body that I think helped to give a really good scene setting Mm -hmm. for a lot of Degas' work and place it in a broad social context. We've started talking then about
0: the first uh, section of the book and I just want to back up for one moment to just talk about the the overarching kind of organization of the book into these three sections. So the first is we've just been talking about art and context gender, race and labor. The second section of the book is making and materiality um, and the third is writing Degas. Could you say a little bit, Catherine, about the choice to organize the book the way that you did, or the way that you all did. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, partly it, it fell together quite naturally mm-hmm. um, in terms of what the authors themselves wanted to write about. But we're going from trying to give, a, as I say, a sort of stage setting in the first section, and then moving to something that's much more object focused in the okay. second section. So, wanting to again, partly contextualize what Degas was doing in terms of the sort of technological developments of the day, including, for example, photography, yes. but also looking much more at the, the physicality of the making and also the, the, the nature of the objects themselves. And then because this was produced in the context of of the centenary of Degas' death, I also wanted to include something about ways in which we write Degas or ways in which Degas has been written by, um, whether by his contemporaries or by art history. So that gave us a chance to to reflect a little bit more on, a little bit about the historiography, but also about the development of uh, Degas' reputation and ways in which he was viewed both by his contemporaries and posthumously.
0: In the first section of the book, one of the things I, I really like about this section of the book and the ways the different essays engage this is that it, it's truly a, a collection of essays, these first five chapters, that looks at gender not just in terms of a focus on, you know, Degas' relationship to women or the role that women played in his life or the female body in the in the work, but that it takes seriously gender as a kind of broad spectrum of thinking about femininity and masculinity, uh, Uh thinking about the relationship between humans and animals, thinking about the intersections Uh between gender uh, and labor and race. And I I don't want to leave our discussion of of that section without really zooming in a little bit on this question of race, because I feel like uh, while, as you say, the theme of gender has been there really since the beginning of Degas, criticism and scholarship, I wonder about the history of Thinking about Degas' work in relationship to race, what that longer term history is and how the the book and especially um, Marilyn Brown's essays sort of contributing to drawing on maybe more recent scholarship in race and postcolonial studies to to think about uh, that issue in his work.
1: Yeah, I really wanted to include uh, Marilyn Brown's article about Miss Lala at the Cirque Fernando, um, a wonderful painting in London's National Gallery um, Mm -hmm. from 1879. That was an essay that had been published in the Art Bulletin, Mm -hmm. and I wanted to give her the chance to update it in the light of some more recent scholarship and some more recent archival material that's come to light. Her work on Degas and race has looked at Degas, fam- the branch of his family that was in New Orleans, and uh, there's the wonderful painting of, of the cotton office in New Orleans, mm-hmm. and thinking about Degas' own family heritage, um, ways in which Degas' experiences in New Orleans may or may not have played out in his work. The most important thing I think that Marilyn talks about, uh, I mean, of, of the many important things that she talks about in that essay, is. The way in which we can look at the image of Miss Lala at the Cirque Fernando and think of the protagonist, Miss Lala, whose real name was Olga, not just as some colonial object that's been represented by a Western male white painter, Mm -hmm. but as an agent and a subject in her own right. And I think one of the things, and this is, I think, one of the important parts of the essay that comes through um, in, the, in this revised version where Marilyn has had access to a particular letter, a new letter that's come to light by Degas, that Olga herself was, had played an active role in the setup of that scene. When she came to Degas' studio and was doing the posing, that mm. she was actually giving her own input onto onto how the thing can be constructed and how you know, how she would be posing, so she has a she has an agency that has not been there mm. in a lot of the scholarship to date. So. Marilyn does, I, I think, a terrific job of locating the work in relation to lots of other imagery of the circus and of of colonial subjects of the period, um, scientific, pseudo scientific discourses about race. But for me, the, the the crucial point is the way in which Marilyn shows how this work, or how Lala, Miss Lala herself, how Olga herself, uh, assume this active role that helps to counter, if you like, some of this existing, some of these existing ideas that have just gone by sort of unchallenged in our scholarship uh, to date.
0: In this particular essay, the idea of Degas' family certainly plays a central role. And I'm just wondering, you know, when you talk about this in the introduction, and you brought this up earlier, the idea that Degas, uh, what is the expression, the pictorial problem solving is really dominant in terms of the scholarship. And I just wonder what role his biography, I don't really know, I realized when I was reading this book that, you know, (laughs) Is, often, with artists, poets, writers, you know some scandalous story about their. <laughs> and I realize that I don't really know very much about Degas as a figure, about his personal life, or about any of those kinds of things. And has that played a role in this scholarship to to any great extent?
1: I think historically it has, in good ways and bad. I think certainly a, a lot of earlier scholarship made a, a big point of the fact that Degas never married. Mm. And people have thought about. The ways in which his portrayals of women uh, might somehow have been related to the fact that he was a very solitary figure and that he didn't have a any particular close relationship uh, that we know of to long lasting relationship to to a woman. I don't want to make too much of that. You know, I I, th- I think I, I get very nervous when when trying to unpack biography into our interpretation of a particular artwork but but certainly people have i think obviously there are ways in which Biographical aspects of the artist's life are important, and you're right that that does come through in in Marilyn's essay. She she talks about his, his trip to New Orleans to to meet uh, the New Orleans branch of his family, at the time he spent there, and the fact that you know on his mother's side there were you know there were members of the family who had were Creole. Mm-hmm. Um, so a racial mix, you know, how that might have played out in terms of his own identity and his own mm-hmm. attitudes to, to to racial issues. So, yes, I think, you know, things like that are, are certainly worth debating. Um, and equally, I think we've got to be aware of the, the limitations of, of what we can deduce from that for the purpose of actually interpreting the, the artworks. Right.
0: I I get the sense from the whole collection really and I mean especially this first section but the second and third as well that you know when we think about Degas in relationship to the politics of this period in in French history in a broad sense I mean there's so many things that come through question of modernity spectacle uh, leisure class, relations, all of these things. I just wonder if there's a place in the Degas scholarship and, and what you would say about the role of politics in a really narrow traditional sense. You know, What, what was Degas'
1: political stance? Degas was was quite a conservative mm. character. Um, and I think he will go down in history most notoriously for his um, stance in the, the Dreyfus affair. Mm. Um, he was, unfortunately, a, a noted anti-Semite. And his 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 attitude to the Dreyfus affair led to his his break with his his once close friend uh, the writer the Jewish writer Ludovic Alevi, which is something that uh, I talk a little bit about in in, in my chapter. You know Alevy's writing and the the, the book that um, that Degas illustrated or at least the, the illustrations he was going to do, uh, La Famille Cardinal, Alevi's stories are a critique of the, the Third Republic, or satire at least, on a lot of the Third Republic values on the, its anti-clericalism, on social life at the opera, um, on politics. And Duggar kind of shies away from all of that and really does a set of illustrations for those stories that focus on their, their anecdotal aspects of two, dance, two young dancers and their life at the opera and all of the uh, their, their male admirers. So... In terms of in terms of his politics, um, you know, there was there was something that there were things to be picked up on in, in Alevi's writing that, that Degas just didn't bother with.
0: Let's move on to to talk then about the second uh, section of the book, making and materiality. So, could you say a little bit about how these essays, the four uh, essays in this section of the book, focus on Degas' studio practice, the idea of the production of the works and the images. Uh, in his in his earth
1: sure i I love this section because I really like the the things themselves mm-hmm. i like getting in i like getting down and dirty with the actual you know the messiness of the pastel and the, the you know, what was going on in the paint or how the, these sculptures are actually made. Um, and, and that's what we're trying to get at in this section. Uh, Marnie Kessler focuses on Degas and photography, but she relates that to a really interesting painting, uh, a portrait that Degas produced in 1865 of the Princess Pauline de Metternich. Mm-hmm. And this is a, a, a painting that was based on a, a photographic carte de visite. But instead of actually mimicking the photograph, so instead of trying to produce a painting that is uh, you know, very detailed and, and perfect in the way that uh, you might get that photographic realism, Degas produces a painting that's blurred, for, mm. for want of a better word. So he's, sort of, he's mimicking the photograph, or rather he's mimicking photography, but he's mimicking a photograph where someone's moved. Mm-hmm. Because let's not forget that photography at the time required very long exposure. So it's almost as though instead of producing this, this wonderful, neat little carte de visite that we've we've reproduced in the book, um, Degas has taken that and imagined that Pauline de Metternich has moved during the uh, during the exposure, and so he's sort of blurred her features, and the parts of the and the background is still in in a lot of the background is actually still in in focus, so he's 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 created this very. Odd hybrid kind of painting, and that's that's something that that Marnie explores in in her chapter. We know that um, Degas was hugely interested in photography. He made photographs. Um, he worked from photographs, and indeed, a lot of his ballet paintings were also produced from from photographs. So it's it's wonderful to see him experimenting with the ways in which paint can mimic or deviate from photography and the ways in which he can actually complicate the history of photography as much as tell us something about paint. So, we move from that to Durga's sculpture in Patricia Failing's chapter and Patricia's chapter is terrific for the way in which it tells us about all of these new techniques we've got for analysing Degas sculpture, um, whether it's, you know, taking x-rays or um, looking at that surface patternings, mm-hmm. looking at the, the ways in which uh, the materials, the, the sheer variety of materials that Degas used to to produce his um, his sculptures, or these waxes, um, She goes through a whole range of of interesting materials like beeswax, um, uh, plastiline, which was this sort of modelling clay. But there's also wood, plaster, the odd wine bottle cork, um, bits of a ceramic flower pot, cloth, wire, all these things. So one of the things that Patricia does uh, in her chapter is to look at all of these various techniques that have been used by the National Gallery of Art in Washington to help us to to be able to understand better the role of these materials and the ways in which Degas handled the materials in producing these sculptures, the way in which they might lead us to think more about the unbalanced compositions that he produced or uh, the kinds of effects that he was he was getting, the ways in which that, that can impact on our, or help our interpretation of the theme of the work, the subject of the work, as well as simply its technical content. So there's a there's a nice intersection mm-hmm. between the sort of materiality and the meaning of the work coming through there. And I think from there we go to Degas' printmaking, which is a subject that I'm very passionate about, mm-hmm. and particularly his monotypes. I don't know how much you know about, about monotyping.
0: Uh, you know, this is my <laughs> first. Really,
1: I'm going to tell you about monotyping because Please. I feel I feel hugely enthusiastic about it. There are two ways of producing monotypes, as you as you can tell from the title, mono one type. Okay, we're producing essentially one print mm-hmm. from from whatever it is that the, from the surface that has been inked. But there are two ways of producing these objects. You can take a plate of glass or a, or a metal background, and you can just paint onto it with a brush or with your fingers or whatever, lay the paper flat on it, and then peel off your print. Mm-hmm. Easy easy peasy. Mm-hmm. Alternatively, you can put ink over the entire plate and then wipe away at it with your fingers, with a cloth, with a brush, whatever. That's really hard mm-hmm. because what you're doing is producing a picture from the darkness. Yeah, yeah. So it's a subtractive form of printmaking, yeah. And Degas produced hundreds of these, and they're fascinating works. Sometimes he produced them, he would make one print, so do the mono print, and then put another layer of paint paper on, on the plate to take a much paler impression, and sometimes he reworked those in pastel. Mm-hmm. But the monotypes themselves, so the, the main works, are a strange body of work. Because of that diff- difficult way of working uh, in that subtractive method, a lot of these works are very indistinct or the shapes shift around a little bit mm-hmm. or you can see his fingerprints on on the plate. All, all of these strange interventions, there's an element of chance mm-hmm. in these works. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what Jonas Beyer focuses on in his chapter. Mm-hmm. He talks about these dark field monotypes as works in which Degas kind of loosened his garters and freed himself right. from academic constraints because he was a wonderful draftsman, Degas. As I said earlier, he produced lots of sketches. He was noted for the precision of his draftsmanship. And here in these monotypes, we have these strange, mutable works that, where he seems to have thrown all of that precision out of the window. And Bayer talks about ways in which these seem to be pictures that were left in a kind of visual and conceptual flux. So they have that kind of fascination. And then monotyping, although it's monotyping in the light field, um, primarily in the light field manner, so where you paint or make your marks on the plate. Uh, so that's that first type that I described. That's that's the kind of printmaking that he used for his images produced to illustrate Ludovic Alevi's uh, series of stories, La Famille Cardinale. And that's that's the chapter that, that I've contributed.
0: Right. So in this chapter, Catherine, you look at these illustrations and ta- and you're challenging the ways that they've been read previously as a kind of satire of lower middle class family life and values. And you offer a new reading that actually links these images to the French publishing industry. Uh, could you hmm. say a little bit more about that?
1: Sure. This chapter really comes out of my interest in, in these intersections between literature and the visual arts, between poetry and painting. So it, it, it really goes to the heart of, of some of my my core research interests. Mm-hmm. Alevy's stories are they're light literature. They they were fun. They were hugely popular right. in the late 19th century. They were published in the early 1870s and they stayed in publication. They stayed in circulation into the 20th century and um, had lots of different editions, most of which had little vignettes and illustrations by professional illustrators. So very popular works. Degas comes along and says that he's going to do some illustrations for them. And that's kind of interesting at the time. Because, first of all, it was thought that he started illustrating these works in the 1880s, but we now think that that was probably not true, that it was probably more like the late 1870s, so a little bit earlier than, than originally thought. Mallarmé and Manet had just produced or had recently produced their sort of early versions of artists' books, of Livres d'Artiste, in 1875 and 1876, the translation of into French of Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven, mm-hmm. and um, Mallarmé's own La Premidie uh, d'un illustrated by Manet. Now, neither of those works fared particularly well in the book market at the time. It sounds the art- crazy. <laughs> I <It's> know. <laughs> <crazy. laughs> no, I wish I could have one now. They, I mean, beautiful editions, mm-hmm. but. The, that genre of the livre d'artiste, of the artist's book, was not really established at the time. It wasn't until uh, Vollard, Ambroise Vollard, started um, his publication Ventures in 1900 that the livre d'artiste really came to the fore as a genre in its own right. But you can see Degas thinking in the late 1870s, well, you know, Mallarmé and Manet have just done this. Perhaps I could do something similar. Mm-hmm. So he produces these, um, these illustrations, these monotypes for Alevi's stories, and Alevi didn't like them. Uh, watch for us <laughs> um, he thought that i mean we 're not quite sure why Alevi didn't like them um, one uh, one thought is that maybe the protagonist in that Degas had depicted was a bit too much like Alevi looked a bit like him, and Alevi didn't want to be particularly associated with this sort of flirtatious huh. Yeah. of the of the opera um even though he'd written the stories doesn't right. <laughs> necessarily he was the protagonist or perhaps he just didn't like what what Degas was doing because they're certainly not imitative illustrations in sort of traditional sense right. I and mean, this is a long-winded way of answering your question you're absolutely right that what I tried to do in this chapter was to go against a certain kind of critical current in the ways in which these, these images have been uh, interpreted. Degas did depict the kind of sexual traffic, if you like, mm. that went on in the at back, backstage at the opera. We have the two heroines of Alevi's story, uh, Virginie and uh, Pauline Cardinal. They have lots of admirers. They're two beautiful young dancers. They have lots of admirers. Okay, so far, so conventional. People have interpreted Degas' images as sort of reinforcing Alevi's stories. Hmm. So looking at ways in which the young women have been objectified or exploited um, or victimized, that they're being ogled, that they're the object of a male gaze. But I don't think that truly accounts for what the images do. And this hmm. goes back to the part of Degas printmaking, the, the, sort of the, the topic that I was just talking about. Right. Because these, these images are unusual. They're smudgy. They're unbalanced. There are figures that are sort of fleeing the, the, the central part of the image. They are, in various ways, emptied of content. Hmm. They're all, it's almost as though there's something that's being held back from us. They're showing us something, but they're keeping something away from us. So they're not narrative in any kind of obvious sense. So while Elevy's stories are all about sharing and conversation and conviviality, Degas' images, I think, are more complicated because they, they hold back. They 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 don't give us quite what we want. They don't tell us enough of a story. Hmm. So I think there's a tension between... The narrative, these entertaining little narratives, and then something more difficult that's going on in Degas' work. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that has a sort of dual function. It, it, it was probably one of the reasons why Elevy didn't like them. And it was also, I, I think it's also led to a kind of reductive, critical thinking about the images as just the sort of, you know, the traditional kind of, well, this is exploitative. Whereas I don't mm-hmm. think they are. I think they're doing something that's much more complicated. And that's what I was trying to bring out in my chapter.
0: Listening to you talk about well your own chapter, but also uh, the other ones in this section, and, and really in all of the sections of the of the volume, Catherine, I I guess I have a question about you know the uniqueness of Degas and the way you know the way we talk about an artist, but you know how you as authors, you in particular as an author and editor of this collection, that you know you don't only work on Degas, you work on other artists and and and, and work uh, as an art historian. But how do you negotiate that as a as a researcher, an author, and then an editor of a collection focused on the single artist? That movement into a realm of the unique genius of Degas and where do you sort of sit on that? <laughs> <laughs> how we might think about that and you know just as a general kind of methodological or even just a challenge as as we've been talking we've been talking about the technical like innovations and the ways in which you know i was getting so excited about i mean i like to god but i i you know i was getting particularly excited about as i was reading these essays about his unique genius <laughs> throughout the and i just wonder
1: if you have any thoughts on that as a as a challenge it is a challenge. And there's obviously a lot of myth-making mm-hmm. about artists and about artists who have, for good or ill, gone down in history as great artists. Um, you know, These are problematic terms. These are problematic categories. Um, they raise all kinds of questions that we're familiar with about you know, who's in, who's out of the canon, sure. and so on. Where do I stand on that with Degas? Well, I, I guess I'm going to take the easy way out <laughs> and just say, well, look, I think that there are so many things going on in Degas' works that remain for us to think about, to look at, to examine, to enjoy, to debate. And that can only be a good thing,
0: right.
1: you know, regardless of canons, regardless of conceptions of genius and, and, and all of that. Can I get autobiographical here? Sure, <laughs> is, yeah. is, is Is that allowed?
0: <laughs> this is one of the reasons I do these. Is I get to hear, and everyone else gets to hear, the stories of what we what aren't in the book. Yes,
1: <laughs> this is this is not scientific. This is not intended to be scientific. Totally I I, yeah. grew, I grew up with a poster on my wall in my bedroom, and it was Degas' The Ballet Class, and it's a magnificent canvas mm-hmm. from the early eighteen seventies. It's in the Musée d'Orsay, yeah. and it's an Unglamorized image of labor. It's, it's, you know, it goes back to what we were talking about at the very beginning of our conversation. It is a group of women who are rehearsing. There is the ballet master there. Uh, it's a big canvas. It's, it's compositionally complex. And the thing that meant that that picture stayed on my wall for so many years was that I always found that there was so much in it to look at, that I could keep looking at that picture and discover something new. There was a wealth of detail. There's something going on in every corner of that picture, from you know the, a little dog in the foreground to a woman scratching her back to someone else adjusting her bodice to, to a woman who's reading a little note, that there is this wealth of detail mm. um, in that, in that work. And I haven't stopped looking at, at Degas ever since. Um, that there is this, as I said, I think at the very beginning, there is this energy and this restlessness, this willingness to experiment in that you find in Degas um, throughout his entire life and so many different styles. Mm-hmm. You know, he kept experimenting. He kept changing and challenging everything that he'd done. And there is—I I don't think we've exhausted that yet. Mm-hmm. So I have absolutely—you know—if if I had someone coming to me, if I had a graduate coming to me to say I want to work on Degas, I would say, "Great, go—you—you you go ahead," because there is. There is work of, of real aesthetic density there that we can continue to debate and, and look at and find new things to say. So in a although it's a crowded area and although there's a lot of good scholarship out there, I would never dissuade anyone mm-hmm. from looking at or writing about Degas. The way
0: we've talked about putting together a volume and having it appear in 2017 on the centenary of, of Degas' death, has had to do with sort of looking back, at, at, that is, you know, a good t- moment or an opportunity to look back and sort of rethink some of these paradigms and ways that his work has been approached by scholars and others. Um, do you think, you know, when you were talking about the genius question, that, that do you think that, that there are also these moments, right, of people, artists, great, great artists from various periods and, and contexts, coming back into fashion as far as scholarship goes, as far as exhibition and museum practices go, I imagine as well, that is, is 2017 or this moment or the 20, like, is it a moment for Degas
1: in some particular way, would you say? Uh, Yeah. I mean, I think that, that there are, um, there are certainly great exhibitions. I mean, there probably there are Degas exhibitions going on all the time, but there are, there are exhibitions that have been put on this year, um, that I think are aware of and, and thinking about the centenary. Mm. Um, there's been a terrific exhibition recently at St. Louis on Degas and Millinery that's that's just transferred to the Legion of Honor Museum in San Francisco. We've got um, Degas, A Passion for Perfection, coming up at the Fitzwilliam Museum here in, in Cambridge in the UK mm. that's going to be transferring to the Denver Art Museum. You know, these are certainly... Um, exhibitions that are thinking about Degas' legacy and the way in which he's been exhibited and people have thought about him, um, you know, uh, in in recent scholarship, so yeah, I think the centenary has has given rise to um, to some scholarship and to some some to further thoughts about how we place Degas, how we think about him, and how we think about the ongoing significance of his work.
0: Well, this seems like as good a moment as any to transition back to the to the third section of the book, writing uh, Degas, mm. and to think about the the ways that these essays in this section of the book pursue, you know, art historical work on Degas and the personal testimony of friends and colleagues using those things as sources. And so if you could just say a few words about these three essays in this section um, and what they seek to, to accomplish.
1: Sure. Um, Ruth Iskin's chapter is is an interesting one because it looks at the relationship between Degas and Mary Cassatt mm-hmm. and Ways in which that's been portrayed in the secondary literature—it's—it's it's quite interesting and, and indeed troubling to, to to see some of that secondary literature uh, that portrayed Mary Cassatt as Degas' pupil, mm-hmm. uh, as his disciple, as his protege. Someone even debates whether she was his lover. Right. Um, so. <laughs> Obviously, all of this, and coming back to your idea about genius, that we've got Degar the genius and Cassart somehow yeah. at the master's feet, which is, of course, a pile of nonsense. <laughs> uh, so, so Ruth's chapter unpacks that and, and looks about the ways in which their relationship has been portrayed in the secondary literature. But then she does something that's, that's uh, she sort of builds on that to another interesting topic, which is their respective passion for art collecting. Both Degas and Cassart were avid collectors,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, but they had very different aims. Degas was essentially a private collector. He wanted to. He bought works that he liked, that he thought were interesting, but he wanted to keep them in France, and he, if if he was going to found a private museum, which of course he didn't, he wanted it to remain a private museum. There was no question of giving his works to the state to to found some collection or anything like that. He was. It's an interesting way in which he was. He both exerted control and wanted to keep. I don't know. Maybe he wanted to keep the things that he, were meaningful to him. His mm. alone, or at least, um, restricted to a small group of, of of viewers. Cassatt, on the other hand, was buying up European painting. For and advising Louisine Havermeyer and really building a legacy for museum collections in the United States, you know, and, and a hugely important part of the uh, the Metropolitan Museum's collection is the Havermeyer collection. So Cassart building on her relationships with um, with Degas and with other of her colleagues in Europe, but bringing those works to the United States, and with a real sort of um, ambition in mind for the development of, of a museum collection. So very different different ambitions, but again, treated quite differently in the secondary literature. Mm-hmm. And Ruth weighs up, again, the ways in which their collecting habits were defined and discussed in the secondary literature. Right. Then I think building on from that idea of Degas and his sort of private collection, we move to Heather Dawkins' discussion of Degas' studio. And here we've got a really Interesting experimental chapter mm. where, where Heather discusses Durga's studio as an example of what is referred to as the extended mind. Mm. So that's a concept, that's an idea from philosophy and cognitive science that's been put forward by Andy Clark and Dave Chalmers um, that captures the idea that the brain's capacities are extended and developed through our use of objects and the way in which we navigate our environment. Heather debates the extent to which Degas' studio space at the uh, Rue Victor Massé in Paris could actually be construed as an extension of his mind. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it sounds like an unusual idea. So she's—it's she, <laughs> it's fun, isn't it? So she's taking an idea from contemporary neuroscience and philosophy and applying it to yeah. art history. And I, I think that's—you uh, know—that that was irresistible to me sure. as an. And she thinks about, again, the importance of not just materials and models to Degas, but also the way in which that space, his studio space, had a kind of crucial agency and energy for him. That especially as he got later in life, Degas wasn't sort of going out. Um, and fulfilling the typical role as a painter of modern life. He wasn't going out with his sketchbook and sketching things that he saw in the street, but rather he was relying on repetition, on the things he was doing within the studio. And she has this wonderful quote where, where Degas actually says, you know, I don't need a mind. What is a mind to me? I, you know, I just do these things within my studio. So she's, she's thinking about the ways in which his, his making is embedded in that space, and actually an extension of his 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 brain, <laughs> which is uh, a, gr- a great topic. And then to conclude, uh, in this section on writing Degas, we think about um, we turn to one of Degas' champions, and uh, in the form of Walter Sickert. Walter Sickert was was younger than Degas. He admired him. He really helped to develop Degas' reputation in Britain, and. Um, Anna Grutzner-Robbins looks at Sickert's writings, his reminiscences, his memories of conversations with Degas and looks at the way in which those writings give insights into Degas' personality and his working processes and helps us to think about Degas's creativity, his drawing and painting. So mm. I thought that was a, a nice way of rounding the volume off with, with one of Degas's contemporaries, thinking about Degas looking at his legacy and remembering him, which I thought was an appropriate thing to do, a mm-hmm. uh, volume that was there to commemorate the centenary of Degas' death.
0: You mentioned uh, a few moments ago, Catherine, that you know if a student came to you and said that they wanted to work on Degas, you'd say, great. And I guess I'm wondering, I mean, this volume makes myriad contributions to how we think about all sorts of aspects of Degas' work where do you see the scholarship going? What, what would you hope for in, in an, either a, an imaginary second volume <laughs> that you would edit or that, you know, where do you hope to see the scholarship going either in your own work or, you know, in the work of others who are, who are looking at Degas?
1: Of- I think there is still a, a lot of work to be done on Degas' legacy. I mean coming back to the 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 fact that Degas died in in 1917 mm-hmm. you know that, that's that's a whole different world yeah. from you know the when you think that Degas was really starting out in the 1860s and becoming very well known in the 1870s mm-hmm. um the art world in France was transformed by 1917, we've, we've already seen the birth of Cubism, right. of fauvi- Fauvism, of, of Matisse in the Salon d'Automne of 1905. You know, we've had Picasso and Braque mm-hmm. um, producing their Cubist works. Um, Richard Kendall did a, a terrific exhibition, uh, curated a terrific exhibition, Degas Beyond Impressionism, back in 1996. And he thought about some of the ways in which Degas' legacy had been underappreciated because a lot of the modernists, those early 20th century modernists said, oh, Degas, (laughs) you know, old hat. But but sneakingly, they were actually looking back to a lot of the things that he'd done. And you can actually see connections between Picasso and Degas, between Matisse and Degas and and so on. I think there's a lot. To be done there.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I think that there is still work to be done on a lot of the technical aspects of Dugar's production, and you know, people are still finding things to say about about Dugar and context. You know, building on that earlier scholarship, challenging it often. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, I, I think that I, I think that our imaginations, our critical imaginations, can can still work with this with this wonderful material that we've been left.
0: Well, now that this volume is out, Catherine, what are you working on? Are you
1: working on Degas? Are you
0: working on other things as well? What's the future of, of your, of...
1: Well, I'm glad you asked that question because it gives me a chance to to go back to my, my real – one of my real loves, which is this intersection between literature and the visual arts. Mm. And I'm pleased to say I actually have a, another new book coming out with Bloomsbury Academic. It's called Matisse's Poets, Critical Performance in the Artist's Book. and I look at ways in which Matisse used imagery to interpret literature – I consider his relationships to poets of his generation, I also think about ways in which he turned to the canon of French literature mm-hmm. to extend his own aesthetic. So I'm really interested in thinking about Matisse as a, a reader as much as a painter. So that's that's about to appear, which is which is very nice. And in terms of Degas, I'm still working on his his late work. Mm-hmm. I'm turning to his experiments with uh, late pastels and um, looking at one of the things that he did was to work in pieces. He would work on pieces of paper and then build out those pieces of paper, literally pasting other bits of paper so that his compositions became increasingly augmented in, in different ways. And I'm thinking about ways in which that piecemeal approach to composition, if you like, um, was significant in, in his late practice. So that's that's the direction that my, my Degas thinking is, is heading in at the moment.
0: Catherine, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me and for, for putting together the book.
1: Thank you so much, Roxanne. It's been absolutely lovely. And talking about Degas is, was always a great pleasure.